Now we turn in our scriptures to Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 3. We'll read verses 2 through 8 this evening. Philippians chapter 3, uh, verses 2 through 8. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcision on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Well, that's for this reading in God's word. Let's uh, look to our God and uh, seek his help and blessing. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray for the present work and ministry of your Holy Spirit, deepening our knowledge of salvation in Christ Jesus. Pray that as the word of God is opened, you would grow us in wisdom, in maturity, uh, in Christ. I pray that you would make our souls uh, boast all the more in Christ as our righteousness and to have the eyes open to gaze upon uh, the beauty of the Lord. So bless uh, your people uh, to that end. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The most uh, detrimental and poisonous and harmful thing to your soul is, and I wonder how you would answer, uh, finish that sentence, and the Bible's answer that, uh, to that is false teaching. And nothing damages the soul more than false teachers in the church, bringing doctrinal errors into the church, subtly introducing a distortion of the gospel and deviation from the gospel. And it's the thing that every elder in the church must be vigilant to guard against to protect the sheep. And on the flip side, positively, uh, it is the ministry of the church that is designed to buttress and build up the saints by suffusing the church, uh, by almost suffocating the church with teaching and preaching of sound doctrine so as to leave, if you will, no vacuum, that there will be no, very little room left for such deviation and distortion within the body to enter into. The most the dangerous thing is false teaching, so it is no surprise to find once again that the Apostle Paul at this juncture uh, sounds a uh, warning signal. As I've uh, used this before, I'm sure you've heard this from me many times before, I'm fond of this illustration. Uh, well, if you are to launch a rocket into space and if the launching angle is just one degree off, there's no telling how many millions of miles would be the difference far apart by the time it reaches into the outer space. And if you think of that analogy spiritually, how much more, because we're talking about salvation, we're talking about the souls of men and women, and we're concerned with the gospel. We're not sending people into the outer space, but we are 
calling people to enter into heaven, and slightest distortion of the gospel will set things off on a completely dangerous and destructive trajectory. If it is not all of Christ, and if, if it is not all of grace, it's not the gospel. And it is for that reason that the Apostle Paul, uh, as the pastor, sounds out the warning in verse 2 to the church in Philippi made up largely of Gentile converts. He says, look out, watch out for those false teachers who nullify the grace of God and deny justification by faith alone. And the Apostle Paul is concerned about those Judaizers infiltrating the ranks of the Philippian congregation insisting on circumcision and requiring meticulous observation and observance of Jewish ceremonial law as a way to gain acceptance with God and thereby upsetting uh, their spiritual stability. And Paul here calls them out, you notice, using three labels. He says in verse 2, they are dogs, they are the evildoers, they are the mutilators of the flesh. In the Jewish mind, of course, the Gentiles are the unclean dogs. Even Jesus, in Matthew chapter 15, remember when a Canaanite woman came to Jesus, Jesus said to uh, the disciples, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs to test the Canaanite woman's faith. And you remember how the woman responds to Jesus, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table, and how Jesus commended the woman of a Gentile background as possessing great faith. When the table is turned here, the unclean dogs are not those of Gentile backgrounds, but those who reject the way of salvation in Christ. And, Jesus, and Paul calls the Judaizers who distort the gospel the dogs. And he also calls them evildoers. If you pause to think, what is the greatest evil in this world? Is it murder? Is it sex trafficking that so pervades our wicked age? What the greatest evil we see in this world uh, is ultimately to keep someone away from Christ. And so he calls them evildoers, and he also calls them mutilators of the flesh. But on the contrary, in opposition to these three descriptors of false teachers, then Paul goes on in verse 3, to give us three hallmarks of the true people of God. Uh, These are three clear evidences of the grace of God, uh, the things that will mark out the true covenant people of God. And he says those who are true people of God are uh, those who have been circumcised inwardly by the Spirit. We, Paul says, are the true circumcision. We have been given a new heart. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, believers have been circumcised in Christ, with a circumcision made without hands, with a circumcision of Christ at the cross, whereby their old nature, their sinful mode of existence has been nailed to the cross together with Christ so that they have been raised to the newness of life. And Paul says, we believers are therefore the true circumcision. Don't let others cause you to have to add anything else to what Christ has accomplished in Christ that the unclean foreskin of your sinful mode of existence has been cut away and the new has come. And he goes on to list in verse 3 the marks, characteristics of the true people of God. Paul says these marks are found in these three things, that we, 
the true circumcision worshipped by the Spirit of God or worship in the Spirit of God. And we also glory in Christ. We boast in Christ. And we also put no confidence in the flesh. Now, if you look through the rest of this chapter, what Paul is going to do is in reverse order, uh, these three marks are used then to provide a framework for the rest of the passage and beyond in Philippians chapter 3. And I just want to go through each of them with you as we think about our privileges in the gospel. First of all, Paul says, we are those who put no confidence in the flesh. And he goes on to show us in verses 4 through 7, by way of personal testimony, what it means to put confidence in the flesh and not in Christ, and by way of negation, what then it means to put no confidence in the flesh. Paul is really asking and answering the question, where have you placed your confidence for the day you will meet God as your judge and as your creator? Deep down in the depth of your own heart, where have you placed your confidence spiritually? What is it that you are resting upon for your salvation? And the true believer puts absolutely no hope and confidence in anything that has to do with the flesh. Now, by the flesh, uh, Paul is referring to all that you were before you knew Christ and referring to everything that you are apart from Christ. And Paul says there's absolutely no confidence, no hope, no boasting to be placed in the flesh because in your flesh dwells no good thing. Now, comparatively, as Paul uh, expounds his pre-conversion experience, he objectively sets forth his spiritual uh, credentials, how he outpaced everyone else in his generation in terms of the flesh. And notice how he mentions seven characteristics. He mentions both his ecclesiastical pedigree and his religious performance, both his pedigree and performance in terms of what he inherited and what he achieved, uh, both placed on his spiritual resume. Uh, He says he's circumcised on the eighth day. Literally in the Greek, he says he's an eighth-dayer. He is the Orthodox Jew of the people of Israel. He's an ethnic Jew. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He has a traceable genealogical record to one of Jacob's 12 sons. And he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. In the Greco-Roman world, he grew up in a native Hebrew-speaking household, trained in Jewish law under the scholar Gamaliel, sent to Jerusalem under the best Jewish training. But these are what he inherited. And he says, these things gave me confidence and gave me a cause for boasting. And then he moves on to his own performance as to the law, he's a Pharisee. As to zeal, he persecuted the church. As to righteousness, by and under the law, he is absolutely blameless. He lived and strived to live with studied exactness in conformity to Jewish ceremonial law. And that's where he put great deal of confidence and hope and pride in the list of accomplishment, leveraging his external privileges and ritualistic perfections as a way to please God and as a way to gain a leg up over his peers and gain a sense of superiority over others. 
until, until he found salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Until Christ found him in his grace and the whole system of his spiritual accounting was broken down completely. These are things that no longer gave confidence. Christ became the only treasure that men could have before the sight of God. And the same thing is uh, true for each one of us exactly. Whatever the source of your former confidence, whatever your spiritual pedigree or performance, whatever you're tempted to put confidence in, your membership, the Reformed denomination you grew up in, baptism, Christian schooling, upbringing, confessional identification, your catechistical precision from childhood, the amount of theological books you own, your own street credibility, if you will, in the Reformed and evangelical world that can put you on the map, so to speak, in the Christian ecosystem and infrastructure online and so forth. Whatever you can boast about, even your own faith, your good works, your obedience, your level of sanctification, your church office, your ministry, your witness, your reputation. The true believer puts no confidence in the flesh or in any other thing. Because Jesus Christ, his person and his work alone became his confidence. And the Apostle Paul, at this point, would pause and sing if he knew these hymns and the words of these hymns. My hope, therefore, is found nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Thou, O Christ, art all I want, and more than all in thee I find. And this is true of every true believer, that the arm of your flesh avails nothing unto your salvation. Your flesh cannot contribute one bit to your justification. Your flesh cannot bring one iota of progress to your sanctification. Your flesh cannot increase one ounce to your glorification. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so here Paul is reminding the true people of God of the source of their hope and confidence, which is Jesus Christ and him alone. And Paul comes to a realization of that, then he would have realized that the descriptors he used in verse 2 were true of him, that apart from Christ, he was a dog. Apart from Christ, he was an evildoer because he persecuted the church. Apart from Christ, he was the mutilator and destroyer of believers. But by Christ and his grace, Paul has found the true source of his confidence, which is Jesus Christ alone. Well, that's the first mark of the true people of God. And indeed, is that where you find your soul and only confidence in? I dare not trust on my sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And any deviation from the gospel that would cause you to place any hope and confidence in any place else except in Jesus Christ, any distortion of the gospel that would lead you to place any hope and confidence, especially in your flesh, is false teaching. And Paul calls anyone who brings such distortion, a dog, an evildoer, those who mutilate, 
God's people. And so Paul says, watch out, look out for them. Then secondly, he says, the people of God are those who also glory in Christ Jesus or boast in Christ Jesus. And that follows the first uh, mark of the people of God, doesn't it? If you put confidence in Christ alone, then you will positively also glory and boast in Christ alone. And that's what we see in verses 7 and 8. Paul says, whatever gain I had formerly, whatever human reason I had for confidence, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And verse 7 speaks of the change of his perspective at his conversion. Paul speaks of it in the past tense and says, I counted them as loss. When Christ found him, he had begun to glory in Jesus Christ alone. I counted them as loss and had begun to glory in and treasure in the Lord Jesus. But there is a marvelous sign and indication of his growth. Verse 8, he goes on to spell out what is his perspective in the present. Because of my growth of glory in Christ, I now presently count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And not only as a loss, he continues at the end of the verse, but I count all things as rubbish, as human dumb, as human excrement in order that I may gain Christ. Do you see the progression of Paul's valuation? Uh, Here's a believer who's learned to see the treasure that is Jesus Christ and his righteousness, to glory in his accomplishment alone, to boast in his person. It's just like the woman we read uh, in the morning from the Song of Solomon, uh, seeing the Savior to be the most excellent one, to be the fairest among 10,000, to boasting in him as the most distinguished, altogether desirable person. And Christ thus becomes our true wealth and our true beauty and our true glory and our ultimate joy. And this is a growing reality in each of us believers. You ever increase in your capacity to glory in your Savior as you grow spiritually. This is one of the great realities of the Christian life, that God enlarges your soul and fills you with the riches of Christ. So you go on increasing in your capacity to glory and boasting in the Lord Jesus. The more and more Christ appears glorious to you. And although our passage does not touch this, really the rest of the chapter unpacks for us what it means to glory in Christ and what glorying in Christ looks like. Paul will go on to show us in terms of your justification, the righteousness that Jesus gives you, in terms of your sanctification, uh, pressing on toward the goal he has given you for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, continually progressing and pressing on, becoming more like him. And in terms of your glorification, as he'll mention at the end of chapter 3, even being transformed to be like his glorious body, attaining the resurrection from the dead. And this is the most thrilling thing for the believing soul to glory in Christ. And that's the second mark of the true believer. You not only have confidence alone in Christ, but you boast and glory alone in Jesus Christ. And then third mark, coming back to the beginning of verse 3, in reverse order, is that the true people of God worship by the Spirit of God or worship in the Spirit of God. That is, you begin to worship God through Jesus Christ in the Spirit. In other words, only the true people of God 
who have been saved by grace alone can worship the triune God of glory. Only those who have become the true circumcision by the work of Christ, the true Israel, can worship the Father in the spirit and in the truth. That your worship is beginning to be inhabited and empowered by the Spirit of God who now dwells in you. That it is in worship that your glorying in Christ reaches its pinnacle point unto the glory of God the Father. In fact, whenever you as God's people gather to worship God in the Spirit, your worship is expressed and finds its focal point in glorying in Christ. This is where worship will reach its perfection in heaven. Uh, We sing of that reality in the hymn, The Sands of Time Are Sinking, the hymn we sang earlier in the morning. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land, and there is no other focus of glory but the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose face shines the glory of God. A reformed worship is worship by the Spirit, according to the Word, and especially with the Lord Jesus Christ as the focus of all our glory. Oh, what a glorious privilege, a treasure you have given as God's people, that you have that every Lord's Day. You can come having confidence in Christ, positively glorying in and boasting in Christ, and coming to worship God through him in the Spirit. So that's what Paul sets forth before the church. Three glorious marks of the true people of God and privileges that have come to you in the gospel. And so look out for those who try to detract God's people from it. Not only the gospel can make you enjoy those privileges and only the gospel can make you grow in your capacity to glory in Christ. Well, may we continually uh, boast in our Savior. May we continually worship our Savior in the Spirit. Well, let's uh, pray together.